Good morning, Elevation Church. How are y'all? Oh, man, everybody's caffeinated and alive and well. I like it when that happens. That's a good day. You know, it's a good day for a lot of reasons. I don't know if y'all have realized this yet or not, but it's a great day to be alive today. Anybody figure that one out this morning? Because the alternative, while for some of us it might be pretty awesome, I'm not sure the Lord's through with the work that we all have to do. So uh, this morning, I'm glad to welcome all of you here to worship the Lord together. I'm really pleased with um, the opportunity that I'm about to have in just a moment. But I want to share with you before we do, before I get just quite to that point yet, last week we talked a little bit about duplication and about delegation and about the importance of those two activities in our Christian faith, about the importance of those two activities in the church and in our lives as individuals. And this morning I'm really pleased that we are demonstrating what we talked about with delegation and with duplication. This morning we delegated to Matt Compton the leadership of our worship, and he did a phenomenal job, wouldn't you say? I think so too. He always does. Matt has uh, received that delegation of authority several times from us and from other churches, and he's a phenomenal worship leader, and we're always glad to have him with us. So delegation at work right there. And this morning we're also going to get to demonstrate duplication because I have the privilege of introducing to you a young man that I have known since 2007. His name is Grant Skeldon, and I met Grant. Grant, come on out here. I met Grant when he was a junior in high school at Louisville High School. Grant, when I first met you, do you want to tell everybody what, you're, what you told me to introduce you as, what, what your name was? <laughs> G-Rant. G-Rant. Everybody's got a crazy nickname. Grant's was G-Rant. He does not go by G-Rant anymore because that young man is no longer the young man that stands before you. <laughs> G-Scale now, okay. Grant has grown up quite a bit since 2007. He is a phenomenal young man, a man who loves the Lord, a man who has had a lot of Christian leaders, not just myself for a couple of years when I was your pastor in high school for your junior and senior year, but also some other great Christian men, great Christian leaders who have poured into his life and who have duplicated themselves in Grant. They've led him to become the man that he is today. And uh, Grant, this morning, is going to be replacing me on the platform to preach the Word of God. So I pray that this morning you guys will all pay attention and receive what the Lord has to say as Grant brings it. Y'all give him a great big welcome. I grew up in Louisville. Um, I am 23 years old, a student at Dallas Baptist University, trying to finish my degree. Uh, I always kind of start with kind of who I am, and I have a joke about that. So I am, if you're wondering, Hispanic. African American, and I am American white, clearly. So my dad is uh, African American. He is from South Africa. He just happens to be white. And then my mom is full Mexican, but she's the most white Mexican ever. Can't speak a lick of Spanish. And that makes me a very white person that is actually technically, by the law, Mexican and African. So how that works for me is I usually just claim whatever is convenient, whatever looks good. If you're one of my close friends, you see this all the time. So if they talk bad about Mexicans for like, I don't know, immigration, whatever, I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, that's wrong. And then, but if they say, man, Mexicans are such hard workers, I'm like, yeah, we are. You better believe it. <laughs> and the same thing if they, if they talk about um, African-Americans, sometimes African-Americans like to make fun of white people. I'm like, dude, I'm African-American too. And I also always say, my dad's actually from Africa. Your dad's like from Dallas or something like that. I'm real African-American. And Anyway, it's just a good place to be where you can be 
whatever you want to be, whatever, it's convenient. So also my, uh, my dad and my brother is here. Just a quick story, which is just funny. I think it's the funniest. I shared it with the uh, guys singing. My brother, so I, this is the clothes I wanted to wear, but I forgot my shirt at home. And um, so we, I came up early to rehearse and stuff. So I leave it on the uh, laundry room and I call my brother. I was like, hey, Eric, can you please bring my clothes? Uh, my brother over there in the white shirt. I'm sorry, I'm trying to, I am embarrassing him, but I said, can you please bring my clothes? And what he tells me is, wait, that was for you? And he's wearing it to the <laughs> church. And I said, yes, why would you think that I'd iron it for you? So in the end, he uh, brought my clothes. <laughs> so that's who I am. I joke a lot, but um, I'm, very, I'm very serious about God. I'm very serious about my calling and um, just what God's done in my life. I've always joked a lot. Um, I think Christians should be people that joke a lot, but then when it comes to the Word of God and it comes to mission, they should be very serious about that matter, but not too serious to where non-Christians don't want to be around you. So the theme of all this, uh, my message is going to be, uh, it's just really five marks of a countercultural Christian. Um, but before I go into that, I really want to pray and then we'll get started. We're going to be in Acts 9.15, but uh, let me pray and then we'll get into it. God, thank you for... Uh, Dude, thank you for Todd. Just uh, thank you for the time, March 8, 2006, when you just changed my life and uh, brought me in a relationship with Todd, with you, with uh, the countless Christian men and women that have poured into me and uh, just showed me what it looks like to be a man of God. Thank you for uh, what you're doing here in Flower Mound and Highland Village and in this community uh, through these people and through this church elevation, God. Uh, move through Todd, move through broken people, move through church that is just growing from one degree and up to the next close to your image and uh, give them a heart for God give them a heart for people and if they can do that well God I think you'll bless the rest in Jesus name I pray amen so like I said we're going to be in Acts 9 15 and uh, you guys can turn to that just to kind of preface where we are so where we are in this text is uh, we are very most of us are familiar with uh, Saul, who later became Paul. We're at the point where Saul is on his way to Damascus. It says that there's, there's a flash of lightning and thunder or something like that. And then he falls to the ground. He's on the ground and he hears, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? This is the Saul that was adamantly against Christians. He's killing Christians. He's, uh, you guys seen the Bible series? And I loved how they depicted him as such an angry guy because he was very confident, but he was very sincere in trying to be religious. And I love how they showed that he was, he was very, I don't, I guess this picture that of him as a Christian, I forget that he was such a bad guy and that, uh, he's just so loud and outspoken. But what was awesome is in the same way he came to Christianity, he was loud and outspoken and dedicated to the mission of God. Well, he gets knocked off his horse and it says his disciples, which at the time were Jews, uh, heard the sound but couldn't see what was happening. So he's off his, he's on the ground and for three days, he can't see because something he has scales on his eyes. So I'm sure there was a lot of soul searching going on in those three days where he's wondering, I'm about to come here to kill Christians in Damascus, but now I've been knocked off, knocked to the ground. I can't see. And it was because of a man named Jesus who I'm coming to persecute his followers. And um, right here we have God speaking to Ananias in Acts 9.15. And it's going to say, and I want to read the whole text and then uh, I'll go kind of phrase by phrase, so that we can go through the text. So in Acts 9.15, it's going to say, let's see. But the Lord said to him, 
Go, for he, has chosen, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Uh, so this is God speaking to Ananias about Paul. And Ananias is clearly scared to help Paul because he was a guy that was literally coming to that town to kill probably Ananias and some of his friends. But God affirms him and says, you need to, and I want to focus on uh, the first word, which is go. Go is uh, the first text. And why I want to focus on that is because I think the word go, um, and I actually did research to kind of look up the word go, but it is a word that is found throughout the scriptures. It's traced throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And it's a word that's really continues even to today. Uh, but just to give a little background. So here's God speaking to different characters in the Bible that we're all familiar with. So to Adam and Eve, he said, go be fruitful and multiply. To David about building the temple, he said, go and do all that is in your heart. To Moses, he said, go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord. To Noah, God said, go and build an ark. To Jonah, God said, go to Nineveh. To Esther, God said, go before the king. To John, God said, go and feed my sheep. To the man Jesus healed, Jesus said, go and sin no more. And to us, he says, go and make disciples. So this word is clearly traced throughout the scriptures. And this is just some. It was a myriad of different places. But I just wanted to put a couple that we were very familiar with where God has called us clearly to action. So my first mark of a countercultural Christian is that countercultural Christians are marked by action. They are people that must act. And you have to think, uh, we are in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts could have been anything else if you think about it. It could have been the book of sermons. It could have been the book of prophecy could have been the book of doctrine, but instead it was the book of Acts. God had given this information through Jesus to his Christian followers and said, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? And then documented, not a book of prophecy or a book of doctrine, but he wanted, I mean, I was thinking, there's a sermon that Peter preaches where 3,000 people get saved. That's a crazy sermon. And we don't even really know much of what it said. He didn't even record it, but they did record that 3,000 were saved and that Peter preached a sermon. They showed the actions. They didn't even show the words. I think that's really crazy that God wants to see Christians act. And he wants to see um, that they actually will do something about the information that they've been given. Because they've been given the most life-changing message in the world. And that's the same message we've been given. Uh, in Acts 11, actually, is the first time that Christians were even given the name Christians. In Antioch, in Acts 11, it says that non-Christians were actually the people that called Christians Christians. Before that, they were called, uh, does anyone know what it's called? Followers of something. Followers of the way. Before that, it was followers of the way. After Antioch and Acts 11, it, non-Christians were calling them followers of the way Christians or little Christ. So isn't that awesome that non-Christians could see the way in which Christians at that time lived and said, we'll call them Christians. And it wasn't like today's society where we say on our Facebook status, I'm Christian. It wasn't something we said as Christians. It was something given to us by the way we lived. That's a little different than where we are today. So what I want to say is that pretty much it's typical to claim Christ by your words, but it's countercultural to be labeled a Christian by your actions. So let's go to the next verse. In Acts 9.15, we've emphasized the word go, but then God says about Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. So, the second mark of being a countercultural Christian is that countercultural Christians find their strength in their calling. 
I want to share a little bit about a specific person that I have two guys that really, um, outside of the Bible that are Christian, I guess, historic figures that just really, um, they, when I read about their life, I think I'm not really doing anything for the Lord. Like they're the kind of people that embarrass me and make me think, like, if I ever feel like, oh man, I'm preaching up here, then I'll see guys like Charles Spurgeon or Martin Luther and be like, they preached about a thousand sermons by the age of 17. I'm like, oh man, I'm not doing anything. Like, these guys are the guys that revive my passion for the Lord and think, man, I need to do more, be more. I, there's always more to be done for God's glory. So Luther is one of those guys. And Luther, I think, is very similar to Paul. God used him in a very similar way. Luther is one guy that God called to go against everything and turn his back on what he was doing and then follow Christ and then go against even, ironically, the Catholic Church, which were Christians at the time. So... Um, a lot of people don't know much about Luther, though, outside of that he was just uh, wrote the 95 Thesis and put it on the door and then started the Reformation, which, why we are sitting here today, I would tie a lot to Luther. I would even tie a lot of why, um, well, what are now Americans came from Europe is because Luther gave the ability to even do that um, in his Christian, starting the Reformed Church. So a lot of people, though, that know that Luther was actually studying law. His dad had spent a fortune for him to get an education and he's studying law. He was a brilliant student. And what happened was he was on a horse riding through a field at night. And it was thundering and lightning. And it was just a really, really crazy storm. Apparently, lightning bolts were even landing next to him. And uh, what happened was he was so terrified for his life that he prayed this prayer that he said, God, if you spare me today, I will become a monk. So he made this crazy prayer. Not a Christian. He's like, I'll go all out. I'll become a monk even. So... He was spared that time, and the, the storm let up. He made it, and the next day he became a monk. And his dad was absolutely furious because he had spent all this money for him to be the student he was, and he was perfect, a great uh, law degree, and he gave it all up to go be a monk. And he wasn't even a good one. On the first day of him doing communion, he spilt the wine on the bread, which is t- a terrible thing in the Catholic Church. Like They see communion as a very serious issue. His dad went to see him, and he's just like, my kid is a failure, even at being a monk, and he turned his back on everything. So can you imagine how hard it would be to feel like you're called by God to do something and then know your dad doesn't even support you in doing that? For the rest of his life, his dad never supported him. When Later on, as we know him, he would go and put the 95 Thesis. Because of his convictions led by the Scriptures, he had to go up against the church and wrote 95 problems that he found with the church. His dad thought it was the worst idea ever and really disowned him. Um, And not to mention the church and people literally wanted to kill him and at the time had the power and ability to kill Luther. Uh, But he was a chosen instrument of God and God continued to use him. But a lot of people see Luther as this bold guy, but he did have times when he was scared, frightened, and needed to remember one thing, and that was that he was a chosen instrument of God. Something that I feel like we need to remember in the times where we're like, God, why am I doing all the right things but not seeing the results that you say in the scriptures? Why am I constantly trying to be obedient, but I don't feel like your presence is anywhere? I can't even hear you when I pray. So, actually, there was a time when Luther was about to go really talk about why he wrote the 95 Thesis against how the church was kind of corrupt at the time. They were selling rights to heaven, and even you could buy your family members' rights to heaven, even if they were dead. It was really corrupt at the time, and he was really calling it out, rightfully so. So, he's on his way to uh, worms, the Council of Worms, to talk about and really protest against what he uh, what he had seen. 
And his option was either you can recant or you can't, or you can you can recant or you will not recant. I guess <laughs> sorry, you can't recant. Uh, so he recant, he didn't decide to recant, and actually he took a day and said, "Can I have one more day?" Because he was so frightened. Because everyone he knew was saying, "If you say that you do not recant, they will murder you and kill you on the spot. They'll take you out and you will be beheaded." Like, he was going to be killed, and he knew it, but he was convicted, and he said, my conscience won't let me deny it. But he had one more day, so he had fear. And it was said that he would pray and pray and pray, this one prayer. Uh, it's really a verse that comes out of Psalms 119, and he would constantly pray, I am yours, save me. I am yours, save me. I am yours, save me. And he consistently say that to himself, that I am yours, save me. And that's such a simple but profound prayer that I have been chosen by you, God, please save me. Because he's in a place where he's protesting for God's will because he's called by God, even against the church. His dad's not for him, and he's wondering, God, where are you? I am yours, save me. But he was a chosen instrument, and he remembered that. And later, uh, he ended up preaching and saying, this is why I protest against the church. And what's so funny is God would then give their confidence in that um, weakness. Because like I said, Countercultural Christians find their strength in their calling. Even when times get harder, it almost exudes more confidence because he would later go on that next day and people were asking him, so why will you talk now? And he said, even if the deepest pit of hell will give me a pulpit, why would I not preach? And that's a whole different Martin Luther from the day before, is it not? That he would say, even if the deepest pit of hell will give me a pulpit, why would I not preach? So he goes and he says, these are my problems with the church. And ironically, what happens is everyone in the crowd is just moved in such a way that they know that it's true, that there's an uproar that the people can't kill him because if they would, they'd be some type of riot. So he makes it. And in the end, he would be used by God for the rest of his life. And I would say, um, really, it's typical, to, it's typical to choose a life that only impacts you, but it's countercultural to be chosen for a life that impacts eternity. Paul is a man that was chosen and he's going to impact eternity. And the same lies true for Martin Luther. And I, honestly, I believe the same lies true for us. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that moved through the Christians in the book of Acts, is the same spirit that is watching and waiting for us to say, I'm ready to go. So let's go and continue to Acts 9.15. Um, so we said, we've covered go for he's a chosen instrument of mine. And the next phrase is going to say, to carry my name. So the third mark is this. That it's countercultural, for, or countercultural Christians are trash cans with precious gold in them. Alright, so you guys are probably wondering what that means. I actually had it as different and then I changed it today. And then the IT guys were kind of like, <laughs> it's a lot different than what you had before. And it is a lot different. So here's the deal. Um, God has given us and entrusted us with the most life-changing message in the world. Christians, like trash cans, like we are, there's this most precious thing ever. It's this message, it's the gospel. It's what Todd comes and preaches here every day. It's what saved us, it's what sanctifies us, it's what, it's what started our relationship with Jesus, and it's what's going to continue our relationship with Jesus. It's that Jesus died, rose again, and he, he wants to do the same for others. He's, a, he's forgiven us for our sins. This this message is why I would stand here, because believe me, I never wanted to be a Christian. And that's the deal, is because I, what I see in the church is that the biggest hindrance to the gospel, this message being advanced, 
are the very people that God chose to advance the gospel, is the Christians in the church. Is that not ironic that we, the people that God chose to move the gospel, are the people that are stopping the gospel from being moved? Because if I think, or even ask a lost person, ask your friends, what do you think about Jesus? Nine times out of ten, they don't have a problem with Jesus, do they? He's a good guy. No one hates Jesus. Even atheists don't see a problem with Jesus. Ask them what they think about church and Christians. Is it the same opinion? No. They are the people, we, we are the people that are hindering the gospel from being moved. But that's exactly what God wanted to happen, is he wanted to use broken trash cans, these containers. Because I was thinking, what is the dirtiest container there ever was? <laughs> the trash can. And what does God say? I'm going to use this container, this vehicle to move things. I'm going to use this trash can and put precious gold, the gospel, in these trash cans. I was like, that's crazy to me, that he would let us carry his name. 1 Corinthians 4.1 actually says that this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So this, this verse rocked me when I saw that. Paul is saying that we should be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Is that not the coolest title in the whole world? Stewards of the mysteries of God? Like, imagine yourself being in a room and you're meeting just different people. Like, uh, in your, when you're in my age and college age, when you meet new people, you're like, hey, what school do you go to? What do you, what's your degree? But when you grow up, it's, hey, what's your name? What area do you live in? Uh, what do you do for a living? Oh, well, I'm a mailman. Uh, I'm a janitor. I'm a doctor. Oh, wow, a doctor. A lawyer. Oh, that's, that's intense. That's, that's really serious. That's a lot of uh, a school you had to do. Um, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. That trumps any other type of title that you could have. Like that's, and that's us. That's every single Christian that has been saved in Christ. They're a steward of the mysteries of God. That's the best title ever. And that's what God's called us to do. And, and this is the deal. Um, ironically, this morning at five in the morning, um, this guy, this kid from high school back when I wasn't a Christian, the PJ days, pre-Jesus, um, this kid, Facebook messages me and says, hey, I need to talk now. It's five in the morning. And uh, so I actually, are, I wake up really easy. So I see this message and I look at it and I'm thinking, oh man, I, I know it's going to be something that's going to take a lot of my time. So I think to myself, I should probably answer him and tell him, uh, man, I can't talk right now. I'm preaching this morning actually and I need a lot of sleep because I'm preaching this morning on how we need to be Christ followers and be there for the lost, even in inconvenient times. And um, if you could just let me sleep a little while, and when it's more convenient for me, can I respond to your message? So I was thinking about saying that, and then I thought that probably wouldn't be good. And then, I, you know, I'm actually thinking, God, I know what you're up to. Like, have you all had the relationship where you're like, God, I know what you're doing here. So I answer it, and I, and I call him, like he said, and pretty much he's telling me, man, my, me and my girl, we were at the club, and she kind of was drinking a lot, and she started punching me and hitting me, and I got really crazy, and I, I, I'm not ever going to hit a girl. You know I'm not going to hit a girl, man. So what I did was I hit the GPS system, and um, pretty much, man, the cops are after me right now. And I'm like, man, this is so the life that I used to live. And in, in reality, what happened, though, is I got to speak to him and just really talk verses, talk about the Bible. I was just like, dude, this is where you're at. This is what's going on. This is why it's going on. And I'm not, I'm not trying to condemn him. He's not in a place where he needs to be condemned. He's in a place where he needs to hear the grace and mercy of God. So I'm telling him about that, and I'm quoting even one time Augustine, and he's like, dude, that's exactly right. That's so true. And I'm thinking, is this not me stewarding the mysteries of God at this time? And here's the deal, is that I didn't talk to that kid in like years. And he 
for some reason decided and told me, you were the first person that came to mind. And I was thinking, dude, I don't know everything about the world, but I do know who created the world. I do steward the mysteries of the God that created the world. And for some reason, that lost person decided, and my old friend decided, that I was the guy to call. So my question to you guys is, do people see you as someone that knows about life because you know the person that created life? Because it's typical to be saved by God, but it's countercultural to be used by God. Let's continue through Acts 9.15. So what we've covered already is, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, and it's going to say, for the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So God has called Paul to the Gentiles. And he, this is um, maybe not that big of a deal, but if you really look at how God called Paul to the Gentiles, you would think, why would you call a very disciplined Pharisee one of the top Pharisees. He was trained by Galmiel, who was the top Pharisee. Paul mentioned him, I mean, not Paul, Todd mentioned him uh, last week, that we all kind of know Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees, very disciplined, very uh, zealous. And then God's going to say, I want to take you who's just like a pro in the Jewish arena, and I want to send you to the Gentiles, the most undisciplined, just they don't care about anything kind of people. Would you not think, send Paul to the Jews because he could reach the Jews best. When I was a Christian, I got saved. I got saved uh, March 8, 2006, my very first time to a, a church, and God just rocked me. Like, rocked me. And at the time, I totally never wanted to be a Christian. I only went to church because there was hot girls, and then I had God had a different agenda. And I've never looked back since. Well, at that time, it was very easy for me to reach my lost friends that were more in the Louisville area. Uh, I couldn't probably go reach kids in South Lake that well. They would think I was a joke. Uh, but God's like, I'm going to send the Louisville kid to go reach South Lake kids. Or, I mean, for me to see that God sent Paul to the Gentiles is like thinking sending Michael Jordan with all his athleticism to like the Star Trek convention or the Star Wars convention. Like, yeah, is he a big deal? Will everyone know his name? Yeah, but is he going to have influence in that world? They don't care about Michael Jordan. Like, that's not a big deal to them at all. It, if it was Darth Vader, they'd go nuts. But that's not who they, God sent to him. And then, this is what's funny. is So instead of sending Paul to the Jews, what God does is he sends Matthew to the Jews. And if you all know who Matthew is, he's a tax collector, which means he traded and betrayed the Jews. And he took money from the Jews. So instead of sending Paul to the Jews, he, God decided to send Matthew to the Jews, which to me would be like sending, <laughs> what came to mind was like a diehard Twilight fan to like the hunting community and the fishing community. They don't, they think that's lame. Like that's not manly to like Twilight, but you have like Team Edward, Team, I don't even know the other name. What's the other guy's name? Team Jacob. See, <laughs> Eric. Sending Team, like sending that guy to, I don't know, the Duck Commander guys is not going to work. But that's how God works because he, I mean, for the first one, Michael Jordan's power, his influence, all his confidence doesn't matter to the Star Trek community. In the same way, neither is Paul's influence, his zeal, all that, really is not going to be a place where Paul could say, this is why I was used in such a way. This is why I did so much. I think God purposely tries to rob us of any bragging rights uh, because Paul doesn't have bragging rights to the Gentiles. They don't care about his discipline. It almost looks, makes them look bad. I mean, have you all ever been around uh, non-Christians and they cuss around you and they're like, oh, sorry, sorry. Like, we can't handle hearing cuss words. Uh, that's what Paul's going to be like with non-Christians. 
but worse because we're not even close to what Paul's like. And then, and then sending Matthew to the uh, Jews, or like I said, a Twilight fan to like the Duck Commander guys, he's not influential at all. They almost don't even want to listen to him. He's like, be a man, like don't watch Twilight. But it, God likes to use that too. Incapable people that are unconventional. You never think that this would be the kind of guy God would use in that community, but God does. Because I think God wants to use people that in the end could never boast in his presence. In fact, that's what Corinthians says, is I will use the weak, the lowly, the despised, so that in the end they'd be humbled in my presence. They can never boast before me. And in the end, wouldn't we just worship God all the more to know, dude, God did some crazy things in some crazy ways to do. That was, and we were all a part of this epic drama. And this is why I'm really passionate about just mission, is because if you told me, or just show me a Christian that's bored in the church, and I'll show you a Christian that's not on mission. Because this is what all this is about. If you don't want to be a part of mission, then you're going to be bored. Like this deal, Sunday morning, it's cool, it's good, it gives us fed. But if you're not going to be the church for the rest of the week, then I, this is going to be very, very boring. And that's why church becomes boring is because people don't go on mission. They don't see themselves as a church. They don't see their neighborhood, their workforce. They don't see that as mission. So it's just another job and it's just something to pass the time until you come back to this. And this will become very boring very fast. So it's typical to be ashamed of your weaknesses before God, but it's countercultural to embrace your weaknesses for God's glory. Let's continue to the last verse. It's going to be Acts 9.16. And God says, uh, and it finishes this statement to Ananias saying, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the fifth mark of a countercultural Christian is that Countercultural Christians suffer and sacrifice for his name. So in 312 AD, Constantine became the emperor of Rome. And why this is important, why I'm bringing it up, is because when he became the emperor of Rome, he made a certain religion the main religion. And that's really changed everything since uh, Jesus' ascension. Because before 312 AD, Christians were persecuted. Christians were killed. Christians were set on fire to just so there would be light in the streets. If you were a Christian and decided you were going to be one, you decided to be one because you truly believed God had raised from the dead. Then after 312 AD, being a Christian was not persecution, it was popularity. Being a Christian went from being persecuted to privileged even. It, you should be privileged. It would be, I mean, you should be a Christian. It would be smart and wise for you to be a Christian because everyone is. It's, even today we see that in politics where it's like, what religion does he believe? At the time, it was really smart and wise to be a Christian. And what happens now is, so we see a verse like, for I will show him how he must suffer for the sake of my name. Let's be honest of where we are. We're in Flower Mound, Texas, where there's churches on churches on churches. Like, It's very popular. You're not going to be persecuted for being a Christian. I, when, wouldn't you all agree that I would think you'd get persecuted more for not being a Christian in Flower Mound. Like if you said you're an atheist, that's like, whoa, Christian, is that a, am I right? So how are we going to suffer for being a Christian when we're in a community, an area where it's the best thing to be? But my, from my experience over the last seven years of being Christian, it's popular to be a Christian. It's not popular to actually be a Christian. So you can be a Christian that says you're a Christian, but just don't do anything about your Christianity. Then, then that's very, very unpopular. So, um, really, what 
and I'm, I'm in a ministry that gets to um, really go around and uh, we do missions for different organizations, uh, for different churches in different communities. Uh, some communities are inner city and they're really, really um, just broken cities. They have different problems than Flower Mound. And then there's areas where there's um, suburban areas and it's like Plano, Flower Mound, different areas like that. And you know, there's something that I've noticed as we've kind of done, we've done I think 23 missions over the last three years in different communities, inner city, some in like uh, the Victory Meadows area, which is more um, international. And then there's places like this where it's suburban. So from what I see in, in the inner city, uh, there's more of a type of victim card that's played. There's the place like, hey, I need, I need, I need. There's this open hand uh, community where they're open handed. They're going to receive whatever they can get. In fact, they almost feel entitled. You guys need to help me. That's so missions in that area, you have to embrace more through tangible means uh, so that you can reach the more emotional, spiritual needs. But in a community like this, if you go and try to do tangible things for people in Flower Mountain, that's laughable. You go to mow people's lawns, that's laughable. They pay people to do that. They pay hardworking Mexicans to do that, honestly. <laughs> so there's not a victim card being played there. There's the God complex. No, no, everything's okay. We're good. We're fine. And you guys know, they're not fine. We're not fine. If we're, as Christians aren't fine, I know a lot of people ain't fine. <laughs> it's just going to come out sooner or later. So, there's this God complex, and they don't have an open hand. That's not the way you reach them. You don't give them things. But they do have what I think they need is a handshake. What people in Flower Mound or suburban communities, what I've seen, is they lack real relationships with people. They don't know their neighbors. They don't know the people around them. They go to work, drive in through the back door, uh, go in the garage, and you might see them checking the mail or walking the dog, but they don't know anyone. You might know who, you might know the names of the people in your community, but do you actually know who they are, what they do, what their passions are, what their kids' names are, and what school they go to, and what they love to do? What gets them talking? Or have you just met them and know how long they've lived there? So the approach is a lot different. And why is this important to us is because it's easier. It's less, it's cost efficient because it's free. Having a relationship or throwing parties, like I'm more on a practical side, this is what works in suburban communities, is throwing block parties, is having people over for dinner, is babysitting their kids, is giving more and more reasons of why we are at each other's house inside, not just waving while we jog by. Those are really easy means and ways to reach people. And here's the way God's designed it, is 70, so there's a Barna poll that they do studies on uh, just Christian topics and stuff like that. So they did a study and they're trying to find out, they're asking all these Christians, um, how do you, be, like what helps you the most to one, become a Christian and two, grow as a Christian? And 71% of people said that it was a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a person, a Christian, like a legit Christian that lived out what we're talking about here in Acts. And so they tied a lot of their spiritual growth to just having a person that they could see, this is how he's a man of God. This is how he treats his wife. This is how he treats his kids when they act up. This is how he runs his household. This is what he will not do. This is what's important to him, and this is what he doesn't care about. Even though the world cares about that, he doesn't care at all. So they tied all that, 71%, to just seeing what it looked like to be a Christian and having that relationship. So what does that mean for us? That's easy. We can easily have relationships with people in your community. Well, there's another statistic that unfortunately goes at odds with that, is that they did a study also, and they were asking, uh, just pretty much trying to find out 
what it looks like to be a Christian and what are maybe the effects of after you become a Christian. What they found out is that 80% of Christians within two years of being one, they have almost given up all relationship or influence with lost people. (laughs) They don't have any more lost friends within two years. So God's designed it in such a way that Christians are the people that go and reach the lost people, but Christians have decided that, with good intention I'll say, to hang out with all Christians, that in two years they really don't even have influence or relationships with lost people. So do you all see how that's going to be at odds is God wants us to go to the people, but we've decided it's really good over here and we like being comfortable and safe and having a good relationship with God, but what about the people that don't? And Max Lucado said it really well when he said that the reason we don't share our faith with non-Christians is because we've forgotten what it's like to be a non-Christian. So we've been in a relationship with God and it's been so great that sometimes we forget that I mean, do y'all, do y'all remember that I mean, maybe, maybe it was for me is I know what it's like to be around all this but not have one person reach out and just say, dude, this is what it's all about. So I guess what I want to challenge you guys to do is don't be a typical Christian that just goes to church. Be a countercultural Christian that is the church. Because there are lost people, man. Like, <laughs> that guy that called me at five in the morning, man, that's awesome. Um, I'm going to show a video because I'm getting emotional. And <laughs> can you play that video and then we'll get into it? But yeah, let's go. about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore, it's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut, and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd, and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers, because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point, and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, 
Remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over-glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. Going? The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in. Alright, can we replay that video? I'm being serious, like we really are going to. Okay, so, that guy right there, that foolish shirtless man, that is Todd Hamilton. No, that's Jesus, sorry. <laughs> that is Jesus, sorry. That is Jesus, that is a lone nut that comes down, God embodied in a man's life, and then here comes Todd. He's the second follower, the green shirted guy. He's going to I think get on all four, like go under his legs in a second. So that's Todd, who's been moved by this guy and decided, I will be a second follower. And then you see how he starts calling out to other people. And this, like he said, gives permission. <laughs> Todd, Todd gives permission to other people to say, hey, there's something going on here and there's something about this Jesus guy. And then you're going to start seeing what, uh, last week I came and I got to see the, he kind of had a couple people stand up. They were, what do you call them? The leadership team. That, these guys that are starting to show up are going to be the leadership team and that they are specific people that have said, I will back what Todd is doing because I believe in the guy that he's following who is Jesus Christ. And like I said, and like you guys are going to see and have already seen, what happens is because Todd decides to follow Jesus is other certain people, specific people say, I want to get behind you. And then because those certain people, then more and more people go and Eventually, it gets to the point where Christianity is, and this is real Christianity, not the Christianity where you just go to church that was popular today, but the kind where you actually do something about it. That Christianity becomes so popular that it's unpopular to be just some nominal, typical Christian. And that's what um, I guess my hope for Elevation Church is. I know it's Todd's hope for Elevation, is that there's such a movement in the way in which Elevation lives their life in Flower Mound, in Highland Village, in the different communities you guys are in, that it is so popular, and it's almost absurd. Why would you not be a true Christian? Why would you not be a countercultural Christian? Because in the end, I, I call it countercultural Christian, but I think Jesus would just call it a Christian. I think being a Christian is all the things that I already said. It's not an extreme Christian. It's just, this is what God's already called us to. There's just some type of delusion, I guess, that there's another way to be a Christian like that's not that committed, that doesn't give that doesn't do what it actually means to be a Christian. So I'll end with uh, this statement and then we'll just, I'll pray that um, God's called us to uh, be, I guess, countercultural. And it's really typical to just go to church, to do this. But it is countercultural to be the church. And uh, one quote that I love that C.T. Studd, he's a missionary, very, very bold missionary, said was that, um, he said, we only have one life, it will soon be passed. It's only what's done for Christ will last.
So I'll repeat that because there's nothing else that's going to matter. In the end, 10,000 years from now, the only people that will be around or the only thing that will be around is not cars, not money, not status, not any of that. It will be the people here will be around. No matter where you are, you'll be around. The, you guys are eternal, I'm eternal, and then God's eternal. I think there's a reason why God has called us to love God and love people. We're the only eternal things there are. So only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.